Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. And this is a special edition of the podcast which we're doing in partnership with the male suicide prevention charity CALM, or the Campaign Against Living Miserably. I'm joined today by Johan Hari, the author of a new book about the real causes of depression and containing some very surprising information about the drugs we all take for it. Also by Joel Beckman, who's the operating director of CALM in the UK. Hello, welcome. Hey Sam, great to be with you. Hello. Johan, probably on the very morning uh, or afternoon many of our listeners are listening to this podcast, a significant proportion of them will have popped some sort of SSRI. Now, it seems to me the suggestion of your book is that probably for a vast majority of those people, they should not be. Can you tell me if that's so and maybe qualify it? You're frowning. No, I don't, that's not what I think. I think it's a much more complex conversation than that. So the reason I wrote the book and the reason I wanted to spend three years researching this is because there were these two mysteries that were kind of puzzling me. One is, why was I still depressed? When I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor. I'd explained that I had these... The, classic symptoms of depression I felt like this kind of pain was leaking out of me I couldn't regulate or control it and I was told a story by my doctor which was you know there's this chemical called serotonin some people are naturally lacking that serotonin in your brains you're 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 clearly one of them take these drugs and they'll boost you back to you know what we would call normal so I started taking the drug I did feel a really significant lift at first and then um, about two or three months later I felt this kind of sense of pain kind of flooding back in went back to the doctor he said clearly we're not giving you a high enough dose I was given a higher dose again I felt better for a few months and this sense of of pain kind of recurred and this pattern continued till I was taking the maximum dose you can take and I took them for 13 years with a couple of of short breaks so it was that mystery like so I've been told this story I'm doing everything this story tells you to do and I still felt quite acute sense of depression the other question I wanted to answer was why are there so many other people like me You know, since 2006 in Britain, there's been a 108% increase in people taking antidepressants. One in five Americans is taking a psychiatric drug at the moment, which is extraordinary. So there's this very deep level of distress that is spreading like a kind of tar across the culture. And I thought, well, why is this happening? So I then went on this this long journey. I, you know, I went around the world more than once. I I traveled over 40,000 miles. I went to interview the leading scientists in the world on this and people who have these strange and different perspectives on depression from an Amish village in Indiana where they have very low levels of depression to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if it would improve people's mental health to one of the world's most leading universities in Baltimore that was giving people psychedelics to see if it would help them. And I think the main thing I learned, it's too narrow to think it's about chemical antidepressants. So there was a startling fact about chemical antidepressants, which is that between 65 and 80% of people taking chemical antidepressants are depressed again within a year. That doesn't mean they have no value or that people should stop taking them. What it does mean is they should, they should not be the one thing on the menu we offer to depressed people since they, in fact, don't work for the majority of people. It doesn't mean they have, distress, it doesn't mean they have no value. The serotonin story, though, I mean, one of the most startling things in the book, because I absolutely bought and understood that story, that there's a lack of serotonin, you boost up your serotonin, you're fine. I mean, your book contends, on the basis of interviewing scientists, that there is literally no evidence at all and never has been that serotonin levels are linked to depression. This absolutely astonished me. So I went and interviewed some of the world's leading scientists. There's a fantastic, probably the world's leading expert on this, Professor Irving Kirsch at Harvard University. I tell his story in the book. Again, Irving was a really strong believer in this serotonin story um, and recommended and laid it out in books. What was shocking was to discover that, in fact, as Dr David Healy, who's uh, one of the leading British experts, put it to me, 
You can't even say this story was discredited because it was never in fact credited. There was never a time when half of the scientists in the field believed that low serotonin was causing depression. Professor Andrew Scull at Princeton has written that, uh, I think the phrase he, was, he used was, it's grossly misleading and unscientific to say low serotonin causes depression. Now, I was very reluctant to hear that, because if you've been given a story about your distress, even if it's a story that doesn't work very well, it feels like it contains the distress, it structures it in some way. So I was very reluctant, and, and, and yet when I went and looked at all this evidence, what I found is that that story has stopped us from seeing the real causes of depression and anxiety. I, I lay out nine real causes of depression and anxiety in the book. Two are biological factors that make it worse. The rest are factors in how we live. So if I think about for the first, you know, whatever it was, 17, 18 years of my life before I took these drugs, I thought depression was all in my head, meaning it's a sign of weakness, it's, you know, it's all in your head, meaning it's imaginary. And then for the next 13 years, I thought it was all in my head in a different way. It's, it's, it's in your skull, it's in your brain. In fact, what I learned is largely, not entirely, but largely the causes of depression and anxiety are in the way we are living today and some very specific factors in how we're living today. And because we started with antidepressants, it's worth saying that that leads to a very different way of thinking about antidepressants, So, which is not against antidepressants, it's trying to open up the idea. So I'll give you an example of a guy who really helped me to think about this. There's a wonderful South African psychiatrist called Derek Sommerfeld. And he had this moment when he, he was in the early part of this century, he was in Cambodia doing some research when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in, in Cambodia. And he was chatting to the doctors there and he was explaining the idea of an antidepressant because it was new to them. And they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about, you know, I know, some herbal remedy, the Cambodian equivalent of St. John's Wort or something. And they said, all right, well, we'll tell you a story. So they talked about a guy who had worked in a farmer, worked in a rice field, and he stood on a landmine one day and he got his leg blown off. And they gave him an artificial limb. They're good at that in Cambodia. And he went back to work in the fields, but he was in a lot of physical pain. It's apparently quite hard to work in water when you've got an artificial limb. And I'm imagining he was pretty traumatised because he's in a, the field where he got blown up. Um, and he started crying all day, didn't want to get out of bed. And they said to Derek, that's depression, right? And he's like, yeah, that's depression. They said, all right, we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek said, what did you do? And they said, well, we went and we sat with him and we listened to his problem. And we figured out, OK, it's, it's working in this field that's making him feel terrible. So we uh, figured if he became a dairy farmer... He wouldn't feel so bad. So we bought him a cow. He became a dairy farmer and he stopped crying and now he's quite happy. So you see, doctor, that cow was an antidepressant. Now, if you've been given the story that we've been given, the depression is caused by a spontaneous chemical imbalance in your brain. That makes no sense. It sounds bonkers. If you understand that depression is, in fact, a response to life, then you totally understand how a cow can be an antidepressant. Now, I think we need to... We need to we need to rediscover that truth that those Cambodians intuitively knew, which is that depression is largely a signal that something has gone wrong. It's not an irrational pathology. You're not a machine with a broken part. You are a human being with unmet needs. And the solution is to meet those needs. Now, some of that requires quite big social changes because there are things which actually I think are quite compatible with a social conservative critique that a lot of uh, spectator listeners would probably agree with. And some are, I think of as more lefty critiques. But the, the way we need to understand the factors that are causing this distress and, and actually resolve them. Joel, does that chime in with your experience as someone who works, you know, as a practitioner in this field or, you know, with your organisation's understanding of how depression is obviously 
Yeah, it's almost exactly kind of in line with Calm's worldview that, you know, there's, it's it's a spectrum of things that, that can cause people to feel down at any time. And actually life itself is probably the most important factor it could be. Uh, and this, I think, comes through in the book. You know, if if you're going through everyday life and all of a sudden you have three or four things terrible things happen to you or even even one or two things you will be a relationship breakup you know that you could get made redundant any number of things on those kind of spectrum on that spectrum then you're going to feel depressed and that's got nothing necessarily to do with your brain or the how your brain was at the outset what was interesting i think in the book was about the kind of plasticity i think was the word within the brain and the brain acts as either a kind of like a brake or an accelerator on some of those things so some people would be better equipped to deal with some of those things and may not get depressed or as depressed. And for some people that could be those things, their disposition of their brain could make it a lot worse. Yes, I mean, you do talk yeah. a bit, don't you, about the way in which if you've got lots of these connections you talk about and you, you group a lot of your solutions under the idea of connection being something connected with other people, connection to nature, connection to meaningful work, connection to the future and so forth, that these will alleviate the chances that a traumatic event will send you into a sort of spiral of depression. Uh, and is this a sort of return in some way to, if you like, a sort of pre-medicalised, almost a kind of common sense understanding of depression and trauma? Because I mean, it seems to me that there's probably maybe not much more than 100 years old or so, this idea that depression is something absolutely outside the ordinary continuum of of experience. I mean, I'd have thought if you said someone is, you know, Hamlet maybe being, being kind of <laughs> prime instance, Hamlet has a reason for being depressed. I think that's a really astute way of putting it, Sam. And I think the I, sometimes I feel conflicted about the book because I was writing it. I thought this is at once quite radical and quite banal, actually. Just saying, you know, now there's a lot of the detail that is not intuitive and obvious, but actually, in one sense, saying to people, well, if you're depressed, that's a signal that something's gone wrong. You know. I spend a lot of my time in the US, and one of the things that's always shocking to me is the ubiquity of indigestion pills, right? They're just everywhere. People talk, you know, normal people just take them all the time. And what you want to say as a European is, well, hang on, indigestion is a signal from your body that you're eating too fast, right? Listen to the signal. It's not, indigestion isn't some, like, malfunction that you want to get rid of. Like, slow down, right? And in a similar way, I mean, that seems to us ludicrously banal insight, right? You're eating too fast, slow down. And yet one of the things I think that's happened is that our consciousness has been remoulded in so many ways by um, aspects of our environment that we, we've actually stopped seeing things that should be blindingly obvious to us. So I'll give you an example that we're playing out in the instance, if it's okay, in the instance of a, a huge number of people listening to this. So Gallup, the uh, polling organisation, did the most detailed study ever done of how people feel about their work. And what it, in Western culture, and what it found is 13% of people really like their work. They look forward to it, they enjoy it, they get energy from it. 63% of people are what they call sleepwalking through their work. So they don't hate it, but they don't like it. And 24% of people hate their work. They dread it, it causes them a lot of pain. So that's, think about that, that's 87% of people who are not enjoying the thing they do the vast majority of the time, and you're twice as like, almost twice as likely to hate your job as love your job. And I started thinking about how many people I know who are depressed and anxious. The focus of their depression and anxiety seems to be their work. Not entirely, and not everyone, obviously. And I thought, well, is there any, I started looking for, is there any evidence about whether this could be causing depression and anxiety? And if so, what can we do about that? 
so I got to know this Australian social scientist called Michael Marmot, who's an amazing man, who made this big breakthrough on this in the 70s, actually just literally around the corner from where we are now. He started by doing a study that people said to him, don't even bother doing this because the answer is so obvious that it's a waste of your time. He wanted to look at, in an organisation, who is most likely to have a stress-related heart attack? Is it the big boss at the top? Is it the person in the middle? Is it the person at the bottom of the chain? People were like, well, obviously the boss is going to be most likely to have a heart attack. He's got the most responsibility. So he came to Whitehall, to the government bureaucracy here, which at that time had, I think it was 19 layers. It was a good lab to study. Spends two years gathering all this data. And what he found is the exact opposite of what people expected. The lower down you went on the Whitehall hierarchy, even when you allowed for things like diet, the more likely you were to have a heart attack. And this is when he discovered the same thing was true of depression. Lower down you went, the more likely you were to become depressed. So he then thought, well, what's going on here? And he looked at, so he chose specific levels of the civil service and he started comparing people who worked at the same level in the civil service, so say the 13th level, to, to see if there was a difference in how likely they were to become depressed. And he was like, well, what's the difference between these people? And that's when he discovered these, these, these two factors. So one is, if you feel you have no control over your work, if you can't invest it with meaning, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. And the other factor was what he called an imbalance between effort and rewards. So if you feel that no matter how much effort you put in, you're just going to get the same out of it, that no one's going to notice, no one cares, that will also cause depression. And so I was fascinated by this because this is something that's playing out you know increasingly this thing that's making a lot of people depressed is actually expanding over more and more of our lives work hours are increasingly a concept that don't exist and then at first I actually found this research quite depressing ironically or maybe not because I thought well okay at first I misunderstood it I thought if what this is saying is that bad jobs will make you depressed well look there's lots of people who are going to have to do look we need someone to work in the sewers we need people to do jobs that may not be so appealing are we just saying that this depression is locked in but actually there's really interesting evidence that that's not the case M what Michael found is not that work causes depression but these specific aspects of work so I went in in Baltimore got to know this amazing person called Meredith Keogh. So Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night full of anxiety about the week ahead. She had an office job. It wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or anything, but she felt a lot of anxiety around it. And one day she quit, and with her husband Josh, they decided to do this quite radical thing. They had worked in a... Uh, Josh had worked in a bike store in Baltimore since he was a teenager, and bike stores, you know... It's insecure work, you're obviously controlled a lot. And one day Josh and his friends who worked in this store were like, what does the boss actually do? Right, we fix all the bikes. So they decided to set up a bike store that would work in a different principle. It was a democratic cooperative. So the way it works is they make decisions collectively, they share out the good jobs and the bad jobs, they share the profits. And what's fascinating, it's a thriving business, it's called Baltimore Bicycle Works. What was fascinating talking to them was how many of them described having been depressed and anxious in this previous structure, this previous way of working, and how that went away when they worked in this different context. Now, it's important to understand it's not that their actual work changed, right? It did a bit, but it's not like they quit the bike store and went to teach surfing in the Florida Keys. They fixed bikes before they fixed bikes now. What changed was that they dealt with those two factors that cause depression at work, that you feel controlled and there's an imbalance between efforts and rewards. And as Josh says, there's no reason why any business should work in this top-down, humiliating way. A study at Cornell University found that democratic businesses grow four times faster than businesses that are controlled well, in this well, top-down way. But a possible counterexample to that, surely, is mm. something like the armed services, where, you know, kind of top-down structure seems to pretty much go with the territory, and yet 
it seems to be, at least anecdotally, the case that a lot of people who are quite low down the chain in the armed services are themselves actually cherish and value the structure they get from that and indeed that when they're discharged into civilian life particularly after they've been in that they actually are more likely to get depressed rather than more likely to feel wonderfully liberated why is that i think that's a really good example and there's some interesting research on this the thing that connect what's happening in the army is that a different psychological need is being met so the thing that connects all these different seven of the causes of depression and anxiety that i talk about the non-biological ones is I discovered as I, I went on talking to people, is a different way of thinking about depression and anxiety. So we all know that human beings have innate physical needs, right? We need food, we need water, we need warmth, all of those things. There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs, right? There are certain things we need to be healthy human beings. You need to feel you belong, you need to feel you have meaning and purpose, you need to feel people see you and value you. Um, there's a range of them. And there's evidence that we increasingly live in a culture where we don't have that. So to look at the one that the army, I think, does an extremely good job of meeting, human beings evolved to, to live in participative tribes. Right? You think about the reason why we're alive and we're sitting here in the nice spectator you know, offices is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa, they weren't bigger than the things they ate in a lot of cases. They weren't, they weren't faster. What they were was they were much better at cooperating and living in these hunter-gatherer tribes. Every John Cassiopo at Chicago University helped to teach me a lot about this. So every human instinct we have is to live in those tribes, right? Bees need a hive, humans need a tribe. If you think about those circumstances, if you were separated from the tribe in the circumstances where we evolved, you were absolutely right to feel anxious and, and upset and depressed because you were in terrible danger, right? That Someone's was going to eat you. Yeah, exactly. That was, or if you got injured, you would die. That was a signal get the back to the group as quickly as you can. And also it was good for the group because the group needed more people. So we are the first human beings ever who've tried to live without tribes. There's a study in the US, the similar data, not quite as stark as the similar data for Britain, a study in the US that asks people, how many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing this ages ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. It's not a majority, but it's the most common answer. So you think about the profound social disconnection that is really almost the norm in our, in our society and culture now. And of course, you go into the army. If you look at PTSD, there's all this emerging evidence that actually what, what traumatises you, what seems to be causing trauma in these soldiers is as much. Uh, so partly there's the, obviously the traumatic event, you're in a terrible firefight or whatever. But actually, it's then leaving the collective structure where you're surrounded by other people and going into this deeply isolated environment where you're alone. That tends to be, it's when you're isolated and alone when the symptoms tend to get worse. Now, that doesn't mean, I'm not saying isolation is the only cause, but, but, but do, do you see the point I'm making? Yeah. So I think what the army is doing is meeting that need for a group that you belong to and meaning and purpose, because people in the army have a strong sense of meaning and purpose, that you then lose. So I think that would counteract the effect of the hierarchy. Something I think this, this may well bring Joel in as well is one of the things you don't talk very much about in your book is gender and the way that society is set up differently for you know men and women or those we designate men and women if we're unexpectedly PC I mean Joel as you you know your calm data will show male suicide is the sort of number one cause of death for men under you know they're, they're vastly more likely than women to commit suicide yeah. can you talk a little bit both of you maybe about why this might be and you know where gender enters into it 
there is good research on why men are, are so much more likely to take their own lives. So there's a few factors. The, the one that Calm specifically comes at it from is, is about the kind of stereotypes of masculinity and expectations that society has about men or that men put on themselves. And again, they're the quite obvious ones that we would know about, about being the provider, about being the strong or the silent type. And I think looking at it now in kind of 2017, 2018, we'd look back at specifically a kind of post-war baby boom era about the guys in the factories or the when not as many women were in the workplace and so on and the dissolving of that kind of structure of society in the last sort of 20 or 30 years has kind of questioned men's role in society that's sort of a fairly well rehearsed obvious thing to say but and you mean in the sense of there being work which was both sort of communal and yeah. non-precarious? Which is which is why it chimes really strongly with what Johan's saying in the book about the you know the meaning and the importance of work. And I think that's especially true for men, especially of that generation that we just talked about. And other factors as well, but that, that would be one that I kind of pulled out as being quite noticeable from, from what you were writing about. So it's it's those types of things. There's other, are you go into more research, men are far less likely to be able to to talk to people about when they are feeling down than women. Women tend to have much larger and closer networks. What I don't think it's true to say is that men are incapable of talking. I think men are capable of talking in in lots of ways and there's it's not something innate. It's not something innate, but it's not it depends on the way that you it depends on the mode of expression. So there's a huge canon of art and culture where men will draw and write poetry and play music which is expression and talking just in different form but if the man sitting across another man from a table in the pub looking at each other in the eye they're much less likely to talk about their feelings or their depression so I think that can be quite sort of situational and there's like a really interesting thing that, that we're looking at, at the moment at Calm is about kind of shoulder to shoulder communication men are really good at chatting to each other in a car on a mm. car journey that's the whole James Corden thing which works at a football match, playing a video game, running, cycling, but they won't do it when they're sitting across in the way that we are now looking at each other. There's something in that, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I think it's quite interesting. But kind of going back to your original question, it's it's a lot about the kind of very obvious things that we think about men needing to be strong and silent and providers and not being able to kind of open up or have the networks to does do that, so. Does that chime with... I mean, I say you don't talk very much about gender in the book, but does that did some of the research you did chime with that? Yeah, I think Joel puts that beautifully. I think there's several factors, uh, several causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections that I think disproportionately play out in men. Um, I don't want to state that as confidently some of the other stuff I've said because I didn't look a huge amount into the aspect of gender, but as Joel speaks, I think about it. So one is... And this is one of the more complex causes of depression and anxiety that I write about, but I think it's a really important one, is disconnection from a sense of the future. So one of the ways I came to this is through this, this really striking study that was done by a guy I interviewed called Professor Michael Chandler in Vancouver. So Michael, people might know that in Canada they have very high suicide rates among First Nations people, what, what in the US they call Native Americans. When Michael started to study this, what he found is there's 196 different First Nations groups in Canada, and some have super high suicide rates and some have none at all. And he thought, well, what's going on here? So he st- gathered a huge amount of data for over a 10-year period to look at this. And what he found is some First Nations groups are basically treated like children by the Canadian government. So they don't have any control over anything. They're really infantilized. And some First Nations groups have really regained a lot of control. They control their own police force, their own schools. They've rebuilt their language. What he found is 
in the places where they'd rebuilt control, people had a positive sense of the future, partly because they thought, well, it's something we will determine. And in the place where people, places where the First Nations people had very little control, they had a very pessimistic sense of the future. And what he found is this, this level of control correlated almost exactly with the suicide rate. You can really plot it on a graph. It's quite striking. And I thought about this a lot when I was travelling in the US for a different project I'm working on, writing about, in the run-up to the election of Donald Trump. I was in... So you would really disproportionately see how men had this... In the Rust Belt, in, I was thinking about Cleveland in particular had this very disrupted sense of the future. They would have this sense that they, they'd had a future and it had been taken away from them. And I remember there was one street in Cleveland I was on. It was in a place called Slavic City. Anyone who hasn't been to Cleveland, it's like Detroit without the poetry of the ruins, right? And on this long, long street, and about a third of the houses had been demolished, a third had been abandoned, and a third still had people living on them. And there was one place where I was writing about these people who were trying to get out the vote. And Dave Fleischer, the guy I was with, he knocked on a door... And this woman answered, and I would have guessed she was 60 to look at her. I found out she was, in fact, the same age as me, so at that time, 37. And she was chatting, and she was talking about how what the area used to be like, and for her parents and grandparents. And she made this verbal slip. She, she meant to say, when I was young, but what she actually said is, when I was alive. And it really hit me. And I do think, in that case, she was a woman, but I do think this disruption of a sense of the future has disproportionately affected men. So I think it's partly that men, I think, have a disproportionately disrupted sense of the future in this increasingly feminised economy. Although, of course, one where women are still paid less than men. We all know that junk food has, you know, massively taken over our diets. I basically lived on fried chicken in East London for 10 years. funny and poignant anecdote in the book about... (laughs) being given a Christmas card. Do you want me to say this? It was a real, this is a genuine low point in my life. I think it was 2009, I used to live uh, in East London and uh, one day I went into my local KFC on Christmas Eve, which makes it even sadder. It was like lunchtime and I went and ordered something and the guy behind the counter said, oh, Johan, we're so glad you're here. And he like went off, I was like, what? And, and he took out this massive Christmas card that every member of staff inside had written like, to our best customer. And one of the really terrible things is that wasn't even the fried chicken shop I went to the most. <laughs> I was like, fuck, this is bad. But anyway, so we all know that junk food appeals to the part of us that evolved to need food, but it doesn't actually give us nutrition. It actually hijacks those parts and you know, makes us sick. What's interesting is there's a similar thing that seems to happen with our values, a kind of junk values. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, you know, if you think life is about getting money and, you know, status, you'll feel like shit. But weirdly, no one had ever scientifically studied it until this fascinating professor I got to know called Tim Kasser in Illinois, who who 25 years ago began this research, which is now an enormous body of research. And what he found is basically... To put it crudely, there are two ways we can motivate ourselves to do things, right? There's what's called intrinsic values and extrinsic values. So if you imagine playing the piano, if you play the piano because you love it, it gives you a sense of joy, that's an intrinsic reason to do it. You're doing it not to get something out of it, but just for the thing itself. So children playing are always playing for intrinsic reasons, right? Almost always. If you imagine, however, you played the piano in order to get someone to sleep with you or in a dive bar to pay the rent that you couldn't stand, that would be an extrinsic reason to do it. And we're all a mixture of these intrinsic and extrinsic reasons. But what Tim discovered is where you lie on that spectrum can really determine how depressed you become. The more you think life is about getting stuff, getting money, the more likely you are to become depressed by a really significant amount. And part of the problem is we increasingly live in environments that are constantly triggering us to think in these extrinsic ways. So there's an experiment, Tim didn't do this, someone else did. But in 1978, it's a really little experiment that I think helps you to understand a lot. They get a group of five-year-olds 
and they split them into two groups. The first group is shown an advert for a toy. I think they're shown two adverts for a toy, in fact. Not long, like, doesn't take more than five minutes. And the second group isn't shown any adverts. And then the kids are given a choice. They say, okay, you can now play with another boy. You can either play with a really nice boy who doesn't have that toy, or you can play with a boy who isn't nice, but who's got the toy. The kids who've not seen the advert choose to play with the nice boy. The kids who've seen the advert choose to play with the nasty boy. What they've been primed to do is to value a lump of plastic that's meaningless over the possibility of human connection. And I think what you're seeing is that that dynamic playing out. Um, now, that's a very small example. Is the nasty boy taken to be already depressed? Well, <laughs> well, think about Melania Trump, right? I don't mean this is a glib point. Melania Trump was asked in an interview before she was first lady years ago, would you have married Donald Trump if he wasn't rich? And she replied, do you think he would have married me if I wasn't beautiful? Now, think about what that means. Compared to a relationship where you're both in it because you love each other, you value each other intrinsically, what you're going to know, that helps us to understand why you'd be more likely to be depressed when you overvalue extrinsic things. Imagine if you knew, you know, if you become fat, your husband's going to leave you. If your husband ceases being rich and living in a golden tower, he's going to leave you. You're valued not for your intrinsic qualities, but because of something quite shallow and extrinsic. So that dynamic has there's been a huge move towards extrinsic values in our culture. You can actually track teenage anxiety according to the amount of money that's spent on advertising. And again, there are ways to deal with this. You know, we can much more severely regulate advertising. There's evidence that works. The evidence shows there's a very broad range of things that reduce depression. Chemicals have a positive effect for some people, a minority of people. Nothing should be taken off the menu that works for anyone. What we need to do is broaden the menu to have a much bigger conversation about other antidepressants, social and psychological antidepressants, um, because this is a really big crisis. You know, if you look at the suicide rate in the US, and we tend to track behind the US by a few years, I mean, average male life expectancy in the United States has fallen for the first time since the Civil War because of suicide yeah. and the opioid crisis, which I think is closely yeah. related to the despair that's also yeah. driving the suicide. And I think this, this is actually something where I think we need to think differently about Trump and Brexit and the wider political phenomena that are happening as well. So what you've got is some people on my side of politics who kind of seem to think this is due to stupidity or people willfully harming. I'm strongly opposed to both of those phenomena, but I think... We really have to stop patronising and talking down to people. And actually, the, the reason... People are sending a distress signal, which is, we can't go on like this, right? Now, the specific flair they chose for the distress signal, I do not think is going to make things better. But I think we have to honour that signal, just like we have to honour the depressed signal, because it has meaning. It means something that should be honoured and listened to. In the same way... These distress signals that are being sent out politically are closely related. There's, there's this interesting research that shows Trump's support was highest in places where the opioid crisis is highest. Uh, and one academic called them despair deaths. Yeah, I think these things are very closely related. If you have a culture where, which does not meet people's psychological needs in very basic ways, where they feel isolated, they feel that the thing they're forced to do most of the day is meaningless, where they don't have a sense of the future, this is not everyone, but it's a growing number of people, there will be symptoms of distress. And until we deal with those deeper underlying problems, this will get worse. My my thought on that, as this relates back to Trump, and, and again, not necessarily to male suicide, but putting it very simplistically, one of the sort of Trump 
responses was in the Rust Belt, which is why I was interested because you've been there, is, well, let's just say America first and we're going to recreate all these jobs in factories and coal mines and car plants that existed 30 years ago that don't exist anymore. And economically, I think that's an impossible thing to do because you can't make cars as cheap in America as you can in other parts of the world. So you're giving people false hope. If you're saying to the, all of that, all of those people, we're going to we're going to make the economy great again and you're all going to have jobs and everything's going to be fantastic. Personally, I think that's false hope. Now, you do talk quite freely about your own experience in the book. Yeah. And there's one question that sort of, it slightly begs. You yourself went through what, you know, a sort of period a few years back of kind of professional disgrace, which I would expect would have, you know, cut off your connections with meaningful work, would have made you feel much less secure about the future. You know, it would have hit a lot of these... Can you talk about how that affected your own mental health and if and how you know, that's gone into the book and how, you've, how you recovered from it? When you fuck up, it should hurt, right? I did some things that were completely wrong. I wrote interviews where I acted as if someone had said something directly to me when they'd actually said it to another journalist. I edited some people's Wikipedia entries under a pseudonym and my own in ways that were often nasty. So it's totally right that you should that um it's very painful to to pay a price for that but you should pay a price for it you know and especially uh, you know I, I always knew it was wrong particularly in the last as we're having this debate about fake news and you know everything trump has been saying really underscores to me yet again the importance of never tolerating people doing things like that and why we have to be absolutely scrupulous and why journalism is so important and why we have to be absolutely scrupulous about that I'm not going to talk about how it affected me because uh, if I do that it's going to it's it would be a way of asking people to feel sorry for me and I don't think they should I did something that was terribly wrong um, I paid a big price for it it was totally right I paid a big price for it and I'm not going to go into the story about how that made me feel you can obviously guess it's obviously very painful but it should be painful in terms of demonstrating that I've not done that again obviously with this book and with my previous book Chasing the Scream the audio for all the quotes in the book are on the book's website so people can hear those things being said directly to me so they obviously know I'm not doing that again but uh, yeah does that answer your question Sam? Yeah that's yeah, fair enough one of the things I mean we should probably wrap it up quite soon. you talk about social media a little bit in the book but there is a sort of paradox going on here that at once we're being told that, I guess, you know, consumer capitalist society is causing us to value extrinsic things, is disconnecting us, that people are much more atomised in communities. And yet, in a sense, we're all massively more connected. Is that a completely false form of connection? Or is there something in that that, that provides people with some of the tribal connections that, that we need? So I wanted to understand that. In addition to speaking to some really interesting academic experts about it, I went to the first ever internet rehab centre in the United States. It's in Washington, Washington State. Actually, this weird experience, I'm so embarrassed to say this, where it's in the middle of the woods in Washington State. And I arrived there, and the first thing I did was look at my phone, and I didn't have any reception. I was like, oh, fuck, I haven't got any reception on my phone. I was like, of course, right? <laughs> that you should be an inmate here, a patient here, I should say. But <laughs> that's a revealing slip. So it was very interesting. That, so the woman who set this up, Dr. Hilary Cash, she was just happened to be at the kind of crest of the wave of this because she happened to be a psychotherapist had an office near the Microsoft offices in the 90s so she saw this early wave of this and Hillary was so interesting to me because the guys I met at the they were overwhelmingly men in fact they were entirely men when I went there they do have some women patients sometimes the young men who were there 
one of the things that they get disproportionately people obsessed with were these multiplayer video games, uh, like World of Warcraft. I deliberately never play these because I know I would find them so compelling. I like try to avert my gaze from my nephews. Oh, <laughs> and and what Hillary said to me is that was really interesting. She didn't put it quite like this, but she said, "What are these young men getting out of World of Warcraft? They're getting the things that the culture no longer gives them. They get a tribe. They get a sense of identity." They get a way to gain status. They get a way to feel people see what they're doing. They get actually what to them is meaningful work, right? These are the things the culture has, has taken away from them. And the interesting thing to me about the internet is if you think about when it arrived, it arrives in the mid to late 90s when a lot of the trends we're talking about, the massive increase in loneliness and so on, had already happened, right? So you've got this great disconnection. And then the internet appears and it appears to offer the thing we've lost. But in fact, I think it's like a parody of the thing we've lost. If you want to understand the... Re- or parody is maybe too harsh. If you, understand the re- you want to understand the relationship, it, I think the relationship between social media and social life is somewhat like the relationship between pornography and sex, right? Now, pornography will meet a basic itch, right? If you're really sexually frustrated, you can't get in sex, it's going to do something for you. But no one, after they've, you know, used some porn, feels held and valued the way you do, and, and, you know, sated the way you do after sex when it goes well, right? I think a similar way, social media has a role, I'm not against it, but it doesn't meet those primal needs for social life that we have. John Cassiopo, who's the leading expert on loneliness in the world at the University of Chicago, said to me, if social media is a a kind of um, way station to meeting people offline, then it's really useful. If it's your final destination, you're going to have problems. I think our social media obsession, like many addictions, is a way of trying to deal with this distress. It's a not very good way of trying... It's a way of trying to fill the hole that has been left by our culture. And it can lead to further problems of its own. So we're, we're speaking just after, I don't know when this will go out, but we're speaking, I think, a day after Facebook conceded the scientific evidence that the longer you spend on Facebook, the more likely you are to become depressed. Hilariously, Facebook's solution was to say you should just post more but do it happily. <laughs> uh, which I thought was like a really great, yeah, great strategy there. Emoji. <laughs> Actually, no, for a long time, I actually thought the crying, laughing emoji was, in fact, a crying emoji. So I would often send it to people where, like, someone died or something, and I now realise I look like a sadistic sociopath. <laughs> uh, so I'd be like, so sorry to hear about your loss. Crying, laughing emoji, crying, laughing emoji. Very unfortunate. But the uh, but no, so I think that in terms of the internet, again, so I'll just give it just as one last thing, an alternative model of how we might think about that. There's a doctor here in, uh, not so far from here, in East London, called Sam Everington. He runs something called the Bromley by Bow Centre. It's a poor part of East London. And what he had was loads of patients coming to him with depression and anxiety. He would talk to them about their lives and he would see their depression and anxiety were almost all the time perfectly understandable responses to the way they were being made to live. And all he was meant to do was give them drugs. Now, he's not against giving them drugs. He's in favour of it. But he just thought this is an inadequate response. So he pioneered something that he called social prescribing, which is really interesting. So I write about a lovely person called Lisa Cunningham, who was one of these. So Lisa had been shut away in her home for seven years with really bad depression. She goes to see Sam. And Sam said, I'm going to give you chemical antidepressants, but I'm also going to prescribe you to take part in a group. And the group that Lisa chose, there was a range of them, was a group, there was an area near the doctor's surgery they called Dog Shit Alley. It was like a bit of scrubland, basically. As you can tell from the name, it was not particularly appealing. What they said to this group, I think it was about 20 depressed people, is with a member of staff to support them, will you turn this into something beautiful? So they start together learning gardening. And over the following year, they they turned it into this beautiful garden. 
And Lisa talks about this incredible thing that as the garden came to life, she talks about how, how many of them came to life, partly because they were in a place where they didn't have to talk about their depression, right? They've got something else. There's lots of evidence that interacting with the natural world is a really effective form of, of dealing with depression. And, and there was a shoulder-to-shoulder conversation, maybe, to an extent as well. Yeah, well, I, I was... Do you use social I, media? I, I, well, yes. Calm. I mean, that's... Y- yeah. Uh, also, incidentally, I, I used to run a garden centre business as well. Oh, really? So I know, I, know, <laughs> I know the power of gardening when it comes to well-being as well. But yeah, I think the social media thing is really interesting because I totally agree with you. If it's the end in itself, it's it's not great. But there are, and some social media platforms are better or worse than others. So, for example, Instagram's known to be far worse because it's just about visual images of perfection and so on, which that's only going to go one way and end in... But I think there are other social media platforms. Facebook could could be an example where you can create really good communities so, for example, Calm has, which this came out of the London Marathon last year. We had about 40 people running London Marathon for Calm. And we got all of those, they're all around the country. We got all of those guys together on a Facebook runners group. Mm. And it started as we just wanted to put them together. It then became this fantastic place where people were forming connections with each mm. other. Oh, I had a great training run today. I had a really bad day or I ate, you know, I ate some KFC. I'm not going to be able to <laughs> not going to be able to run for, you know, it's not going to do do my training plan much good and we gave them a running coach, but all of a sudden there was this incredible community of these 40 or so runners coalescing around an activity and like and yes, they're now also meeting offline. So we had a we had a meetup of the Runners Collective in Finsbury Park not so long ago. So I think again that's that coalescing around an activity, whether it's gardening, running, something that can give people a purpose, but also a connection with other people can be really strong. And you're so right, there was a study in Norway, a therapeutic horticulture programme for people with depression, which is a lot like the one in East London, and it found it was twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. Which again tells us something about what we've lost and what we need it's this it's to feel deeply connected to each other to meaning and purpose to the natural world to to a sense of the future there are all these forms and lots of other ones i talk about in the book this sense of deep disconnection is is really in the bones of a lot of our culture at the moment but doesn't have to be so there are lots of practical things in the book this is a direction of travel and you think about the direction of travel even in our lifetimes there's been a really significant change in the direction of travel on all sorts of things but ultimately if this way of living is making one in five Americans take psychiatric drugs to get through the day, well, then we, that tells us we do actually need quite radical changes to deal with this. Also, if it leads to the point where you elect Donald Trump, I think that also tells you something. There's a Krishnamurti, the um, Indian philosopher, said, it's no sign of good health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. Or he says it's slightly better than that. And I do think there's something going on that, you know, it's increasingly clear that something's really wrong. You know, and that does require some changes at an individual level, more changes at a collective level. But I don't think we should back up, back off. If it's a big crisis, it will require big solutions. Here's hoping. Anyway, <laughs> Sam is just for the people who can't see <laughs> a very sad face. You look like a Eeyore. I go like, oh. <laughs> anyway, Johan Hari, Joel Beckman, thank you very much. Oh, great. I should just say because uh, if anyone wants any more information, they can get or to hear interviews with loads of the people we talked about then go to thelostconnections.com and there they can take a quiz to find out how much you know the real facts about depression and anxiety and the book is also available as an audiobook since you're a podcast person you might like the audiobook and and while we're on it thecalmzone.net for people who are interested and want to find out more about calm thank you very much both oh i enjoyed that cheers sam why wait for tomorrow's papers the best analysis of the day's news is already on coffee house 
To subscribe to the Evening Blend email in order to receive the best of The Spectator each day, just head to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend.